Hello, this is Brooke and Carrie, and today we'll be we will be doing a podcast on scientific observations in antiquity and how they relate to today's understanding of science through the study of philosophers, including the pre-Socratics, Plato, Aristotle, and Lucretius. So to begin, we're going to define science. Oxford Dictionaries defines it as the intellectual and practical activities encompassing the systematic study of the structure and behavior of the physical and natural world through observation and experiment. Now that's a very long and wordy (laughs) definition of science. So basically, we deduce that means that science is using observation to gain a better understanding of the world around you in simplified form. Science is really important because it's the foundation of all discoveries made to advance things like technology and medicine. In order to make these innovations, we need a solid basis for understanding and this was given to us by many of many philosophers in antiquity. And many people tend to believe that ancient civilizations had next to no scientific understanding since they attributed many natural phenomenons to their gods, such as lightning and storms and all those types of things. But ancient philosophers tended to have a much better scientific understanding than we give them credit for. And we'll continue to discuss this in the rest of our podcast. So stay tuned. Our first philosophers are grouped together in one category called the pre-Socratics, who were alive and worked before Socrates. So the pre-Socratics essentially question absolute divine power from the gods and look for a more solid explanation for natural occurrences. They aim to explain everything and deduce what we see into truth, whereas other ancient philosophers rely heavily on unreliable sources like the muses. The most important thing to them out of every sense was observation of the world around them to make concrete conclusions about the world. A lot of their observations and conclusions were proven incorrect by later thinkers, but it was a good foundation to get everyone started and their original thoughts led to great discoveries later. So Pythagoras is a pre-Socratic thinker and he lived from 570 to 495 BCE in Samos, which is in Greece. He emphasized the importance of being a critical thinker, which is highly a highly valued skill in the sciences. He popularly says much learning does not teach insight, and this is basically him saying that no matter how much you go to school, no matter how many books you read, no matter how wise you are considered, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have critical thinking skills which are so important to surviving and functioning in society and I feel like they're kind of known as what we talk about today as like having street smarts and being able to like think about things very deeply. The next pre-Socratic is Xenophanes who lived from 570 to 470 BCE in Colophon, Greece. So he mostly focuses on everything comes from the earth. Basically he talks about how the sun and moon rise and set and he concludes that they are destroyed and remade by the earth every day. What I find really interesting about Xenophanes was that he was the first person to comment on the existence of fossils. He was up on a high mountaintop and found imprints of marine animals in the rock. Therefore, he deduced that there must have been a great flood that deposited the animals on high mountaintops, and over time, they became imprinted in the rock. And this shows his great observational skills as well as his ability for critical thinking. Our next pre-Socratic is Heraclitus, who lived from 540 to 470 BCE in Ephesus, Greece. 
Heraclitus focuses a lot on the idea of logos, which means rational account. And logos is not only to say something, but to also give an explanation for it, which is basically what all the pre-Socratics base their beliefs off of. And the physical sign of logos is fire, because it's always changing, but it never stays the same for quite too long. Um, he uses fire to describe the universe, saying that the universe is ever li- an ever-living fire that always has existed and always will. And this belief is a precursor to the later thinkers who speak about the universe and its everlasting and infinite existence. He also ridicules those who have much learning but little understanding. And by that, he is saying that we must think deeper into things, and many people won't understand what he says because they don't think deep enough, which is similar to Pythagoras' claim, saying that much learning does not teach insight. And even though some of their conclusions seem far-fetched, the observations of the pre-Socratics not only show their scientific inclination, but also serve as the foundation for modern beliefs today, as we spoke about before. Following Socrates comes Plato, who is alive from 424 to 347 BCE in Greece at the end of the Golden Age of Athens. He wrote about Socrates' philosophy in his book Timaeus, in which he explains what Socrates believed to Timaeus, making it a didactic poem. Whether or not you believe what he's saying to be Socrates' words is up to you. He, in a similar way, said that sight is the most important sense since it is the way in which we observe the world. Through his observations, he concluded that everything is made up of four elements, and the four elements are fire, earth, wind, and water, which are all inseparable from each other. These elements are the basis of creation by the craftsman. The craftsman used a model to make an imitation of the model, which is the universe. He used a receptacle to aid him in his creation. The receptacle was the intermediate between the original model and the imitation. Which again, sounds very confusing, but he simplifies this by comparing it to a family. The father is the craftsman, the child is the model, and the mother who brings the child into existence is the receptacle. So when I first heard about this, it reminded me of the way our bodies can create a specialized cell from an undifferentiated cell, better known as a stem cell. During development, these stem cells are how your body becomes what it is supposed to be based on the information that your genes provide, in the same way that the model provided information for how the universe is supposed to look like. Overall, Socrates observed the world around him and used what he found to explain creation. The next philosopher that we're going to discuss is also post-Socrates, and his name is Aristotle. Aristotle is known as the founder of zoology, and he is a student of Plato who writes the history of animals, which is all full of his observations of hundreds of different animals and how he interprets those observations, which is unique from certain modern things that we would see today. He moves from stating facts to interpreting the causes of his way of speaking. In books one through four of the history of animals, He describes body parts of animals specifically, and then in books 5, 6, 7, and 9, he describes the ways of life of animals and their activities, and then lastly in book 8, he discusses the character and behavior of those animals. And this text is very advanced for its time and very impressive given the technology that they had way back then. Aristotle not only talks about body parts in the chapters 1 through 4 of the history of animals, but he also splits the body parts up into systems such as 
the digestive system and the respiratory system, which we're so familiar with, with modern biology. Um, he uses those systems to explain certain phenomena, such as why fish live underwater, where he talks about the system of their gills and that they need the water to survive. And this shows how he analyzes things deeper than just at the surface level, which connects him to modern science and shows the value of not only observation, but also analyzation of the phenomena that he sees. So to dive a little bit more into the specifics of the history of animals that Aristotle discusses, in chapter 9 he talks a lot about the ways of life and activities of different animals, and he tells this very in-depth story about this cuckoo, and this proves his the extent of his observation, and basically he talks about how the cuckoo mother lays her eggs in other nests and does not build her own nest, and then once the cuckoo bird comes out and hatches, the mother of the other birds that are in the nest either kicks all of her young out or kills her young and feeds it to the cuckoo, and Aristotle is just observing all this, and it shows his very, very long extent into the species level of each animal in his zoology text. And this is only one example that he has in his book. Yeah. So he must have spent so much time just exploring all of the different species that live in Greece at his time. Yeah, it's crazy to think that he has this entire section that's just so long, and it's all about just baby cuckoo eggs. Like, and that's such a random species. Like, it's not about a tiger or something else, you know? So I think it's very interesting. <laughs> the last example we have is Lucretius, who lived in the late Roman Republic in 94 to 55 BC. And he wrote a book called The Nature of Things, which includes six books, and it's addressed to Memmius to teach him about the world. And the first few chapters are all about what he calls bodies, but we now understand as atoms. And he says these two sentences about these atoms that relate more than you think to what we know today about atoms. So the first one is, nothing is brought forth by anything, anything supernatural out of naught. And the second is, nature does not render anything to naught, which will sound very familiar if you've had any chemistry. It's very similar to the law of conservation of mass, which states that nothing can be created or destroyed, only like transferred, um, which is exactly what he's saying here. So um, matter cannot be created even by the gods. It must come from somewhere and matter cannot be destroyed. It must go somewhere. And another thing he says about these atoms is that everything is made up of different combinations of atoms, which is exactly what they teach you in every chemistry class that you will ever take. Um, but he also points out the fact that it can't all be fire, which was Heraclitus's idea, because everything has diverse properties that can be seen in all the substances that you can visibly see with your eyes. He goes even more in depth of atoms when he talks about how they swerve, and he understands this to be free will. It is his under his way of understanding how atoms can combine to form different substances. So he didn't know what we know today about the makeup of atoms and how different types have different properties that make them reactive in different ways. 
So it appeared that they would have free will to become stable. And this, again, is just such a good example of how they knew so much more back then than we thought that they knew and that we even have come to discover so much later today. (laughs) Yeah, I think Lucretius is one of the coolest philosophers that we've learned so far this year because of that. Like, yeah, it seems like so much more recent that we understood what atoms are, but he knew way back in the first century BC before anyone else had even thought that could be possible. Yeah, and it's so interesting that every single thing that you learn in a bio or a chem class could possibly have ties all the way back to antiquity, which I never knew before we read all of these texts. In conclusion, all of these thinkers in antiquity made very in-depth claims about science and what causes the world to work, which is very advanced for their time when most things were just explained by the gods. Many of their ideas would not be solidified as fundamental concepts in scientific fields until almost 2,000 years later. They provided a foundation for scientific discoveries for future generations with surprisingly accurate ideas about the world. Thank you for listening. This has been Brooke and Carrie.